I'm Shelley Schlender for MeAndMyDiabetes.com. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. Eric Westman of Duke University about how a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet affects health, including the health of our digestion and the trillions of microbes that live inside our guts. Eric is currently the president of the American Society of Bariatric Physicians. He's co-editor of the medical textbook, Obesity, Evaluation and Treatment Essentials. He's co-author of the book, The New Atkins for a New You, also the book, Cholesterol Clarity, and another book, Ketone Clarity. As for the human microbiome, it's increasingly clear that our gut microbes may influence many aspects of our health. Eric Westman sees so many people discover better health on a ketogenic diet, he suspects their microbes are doing fine. As for some clinicians and bloggers who warn that a ketogenic diet does not provide enough fiber to make a healthy microbiome, here's Eric Westman. You know, there's a knee-jerk reaction to claim that if something's different than we've seen before, it must necessarily be bad. (laughs) And that we've seen in the low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet world quite a bit. The findings when the studies were finally done on low-carb, high-fat, it it actually reduced cardiometabolic risk, but just by a different mechanism. So everyone assumed that it would be bad, and turns out that it's not bad. I do recall one published study on low-carb, high-fat diet in humans where the gut flora changed quite a bit, and there was concern because the bacteria that produced the butyrate or the, a similar compound to ketone bodies went down in the gut of people on a low-carb diet. So classically, it's taught that the colon cells, the cells of the large intestine, have to have the fuel or ketones from inside the lumen or inside the intestine itself. They basically forgot that on a low-carb, high-fat diet, the ketone levels would go up in the bloodstream. You only looked at it in one way that the ketone production went down inside the intestine itself, therefore it's bad. Well, they forgot to look a little further and understand that actually the ketone levels go up in the blood and probably can nourish the cells just as well, if not better, than from the bacteria in the gut itself. But I have to say that there are very few studies looking in detail at the gut microbiome. That study was out of England. There's another one out of Australia that was just starting to look at the flora or the gut microbiome of people on low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet. But when you talk to people who follow the low-carbohydrate diets, certainly there is a reduction in amount of stool, amount of bowel movements, and also the reduction in how often they go to have a bowel movement. Now, when you talk to people, some people are so fixated on having a regular bowel movement that that's concerned them. And there's quite a wide variation on how frequently people have bowel movements. Some people do get diarrhea or loose stools, but most people, probably 90% of people have, if anything, harder to pass stools and less flatulence, less bowel gas. So I'm thought that it's the large intestinal bacteria that actually produce the gas. There's a change in the 
production of bacteria in the colon, no question about it. I mean, if I can infer that having less bowel movement and then having less gas is what I see clinically, then you know I'm, I'm pretty confident that there's going to be a big change in the colonic bacteria. Uh, not that it's bad, but just that it, there's going to be a change. I talked with Justin Sonnenberg. He's a researcher at Stanford who recently wrote, I think in Cell, an essay called Starving the Microbial Self. He cautioned in there that there's a chance that if the microbes in the gut don't get adequate food for themselves, then not only do they not make the butyric acid that the intestinal lining seems to like, but they also start eating the mucus gel that's right next to the intestinal lining and they can start eating into the intestinal lining itself as food. And he suggests that that combination of the microbial community starting to devour its host when it doesn't get enough food, it might explain why, in his words, there's more colitis and other inflammatory bowel disease on a high-fat diet. Well, I, I guess there's, there's a couple things that I would call into question with those comments, not having talked to him directly, but just because something's different than what we see, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. In fact, the gut microbiome may be healthier under different circumstances than what the current typical American diet is, or even the diet of anyone on Earth um, currently today. You know, we don't know if different means bad. The second thing is I'm not convinced that higher fat diets cause colitis and those studies are almost always done in the context of high-carb, high-fat. But one thing to know is, Justin, what he said was that he doesn't get to talk with clinicians very much. He's a basic researcher, and he would love a chance to talk with a clinician about what they actually see out in the clinical world. He acknowledged that many of the studies that have been done about colitis, if you look at them in more detail, a high-fat diet in most of the studies of colitis means the typical American diet, basically the donut diet. It's high-fat, high-carb. Yes, and sugar quite often. In fact, in the mice studies, it's almost always some degree of sugar as part of making it be a high-fat diet. That's, in fact, what they're trying to do is to cause the colitis, and they're not trying to fix it by changing the diet. They're trying to create the model where the people or the animals, whatever they're studying, actually gets the colitis. When you take away the carbohydrate, in a human, and they're eating high-fat diets to the extent that their body is burning fat, so the metabolism shifts substantially from before, lots of things change that weren't predicted. And if anything, uh, by taking away carbohydrate in the food, I can pretty much fix every gastrointestinal problem that affects people today. I mean, so we've done studies on diarrhea predominant irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, that was done by Greg Austin, who was a, a fellow. We collaborated with him. He was a fellow at UMC Chapel Hill. He also did a study on GERD, where heartburn went away. And this was totally unpredicted, although in the clinic, using this type of diet, I see that all the time. Um, <laughs> so then uh, NASH, or fatty liver, which is a pretty common cause of cirrhosis today, actually goes away when you cut away the carbohydrates. As I mentioned, the bowel gas and flatulence is greatly reduced or almost entirely resolves when you take away carbohydrate from the diet. 
gluten, which is found in carbohydrate-containing foods, is a well-known cause of gastrointestinal problems, including celiac disease or gluten intolerance. And, um, you know, the signals that we get clinically are if someone has gastrointestinal disturbance, you want to reduce or eliminate the carbohydrate, not the fat. It's almost the exact opposite of what we discussed in the animal research. Mice are not men in some cases more so than others. There were two interesting points made with regard to Justin Sonnenberg, this idea that you need to feed your gut microbes carbohydrates so that they do good for you. They produce the kinds of nutrients your intestines needs because if you don't feed them, then they'll start eating you. I keep thinking that that sounds like the mafia. <laughs> yeah, just stepping way back, a carnivore, a mammal that just eats other mammals has a very different gut microbiome than an herbivore, a mammal that just eats vegetable matter. It doesn't surprise me that the gut flora will be different, but you see, an herbivore has to have those bacteria changing the plants into fats. So if you're a gorilla, for example, you eat mainly leaves, and what happens inside the gut, though, is that the carbohydrate in the leaves gets changed into fat. The gorilla has what's called a cecum, the equivalent of a large intestine that we have, but it's full of bacteria changing the plant matter into short-chain fatty acids. So if you are eating mostly plants, if humans are omnivores, we could eat meat or we could eat plants, then it's a good adaptation that if we're eating mostly vegetable matter and plants, that we develop the bacteria that's able to digest it and give us nutrients from the plants. But that's equally plausible is that when you eliminate all the plants and all the bacteria that turn the plants into fats and other things, that we'll be just fine. And there will be an adaptation to a different microbiome that is adapted toward eating mainly meat. And, you know, as a clinical researcher myself, I wait until something is powerful and has clinical relevance rather than just seeing that something is interesting. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen much in terms of the microbiome and the low-carb, high-carb that really knocks me in the head and says, I need to pay attention to this. The classic low-carb, high-fat teaching with Dr. Atkins and that clinic did have a strong emphasis on yeast. I don't know if the microbiome people are not considering yeast. They do not. And I talked with Ron about this too, and he had similar comments. He said, where's the yeast? <laughs> the reason it's not considered in the, the microbiome projects is because it's very much simpler right now to be focusing on the main inhabitant, which is the bacteria. And it's a different process to analyze the yeasts. And they're hoping to find correlates among the bacteria that tell them what's happening with the yeast, but that's an unknown right now. The other thing that was interesting is what Ron had to say to me was he brought up a study done by Alberto Martin about colon cancer in mice that were bred to have colon cancer. In the case of those mice, if you promoted the kind of gut microbes that make for high butyric acid, they got more colon cancer. If you put them on a low-carb diet, and these mice, they put them on a 70% protein diet. He said with a very low-carb diet, they kept the butyric acid production low, 
and those mice didn't get colon cancer nearly as fast. And Ron's suspicion suggesting was that, well, intestinal cells like butyric acid, they eat it more than they eat sugars. They're one of the few tissues that does. So if you give them too much butyric acid, they do too much multiplication and they don't focus on maintenance and repair. Interesting idea and just points out again that if you just focus on one element of the whole system, you may not see the whole picture. You know, the one change could lead to another regulatory reaction. And I want to be supportive of the new research. I mean, I think it's great and I hope we learn a lot from it, but I think we need to be cautious to not be too alarmist about any changes that are found. And in general, the scientists are being more circumspect and saying we don't know what's going to be happening. But there's a pretty strong energy for the populizers to take what data is there and say the data is proving that we should have high plant-based diets and high carbohydrate diets and avoid fats. To sustain the current state of the microbiome, if that's the intent, then that's probably true. <laughs> but I learned from Ron Rosedale that we could probably do better than what we currently see, you know? <laughs> Clinically, it looks as if the carbohydrate is the culprit for these problems. Now, colon cancer, if there's a link between the cancer and insulin levels... That was one of Ron's guesses, too. Then we have to consider that what raises insulin levels most, and that's dietary carbohydrate, and then insulin resistance and obesity. But there are very few signals that I've seen that say that fat in the diet is harmful, other than if people have other reasons for you not to eat fat, be it religious or socioeconomic, you know. Or if there's fat and sugar together, that that's not exactly a great combination, which is what most of the so-called high-fat studies are that these researchers are using to show this. I've seen the research studies where they've tested different kinds of fat. They've tested a basically a no-fat diet, but guess what diet they don't ever test? A no-carb diet or a low-carb diet possible they never will because if low-carb diets don't induce the outcome they want, then there's no reason, you know, they're, they're trying to create the model of the disease. This was explained to me by a monkey colony researcher. He said, we never have changed the diet because we have the diet that creates the disease of atherosclerosis. It was high sugar, high fat. So his whole idea was he wanted to induce atherosclerosis and then study it and try to fix it with a drug rather than create a diet that didn't create atherosclerosis. I talked to him and, and saw him several years later and I said, so have you studied different diets to change and reduce atherosclerosis? And he said, no, because he, he's basically paid to create the disease of atherosclerosis and then just try to modify it. So a lot of these researchers are interested in the mechanism of the disease rather than the prevention of the disease. And it's not on their radar screen that a ketogenic diet might make a difference. My world has become mostly clinical at the moment. So four out of five days I'm in the clinic learning and teaching other doctors what I do. So a lot of doctors will hear me speak and then want to come shadow me. People come in for two days and I just do it for free, let them see what I, I do. And 
I've created some monsters who've gone out and really changed their environment. So there's no substitute for actually seeing it in action. I finally stepped back and realized that's how I learned it. It was by going to the other doctor's offices and seeing it. Even at the American Society of Bariatric Physicians, when I teach this method, I get talks there on low-carb carbohydrate restriction. And most of the doctors go away not knowing exactly how strict you have to be, and so they end up doing a moderately low-carb diet with medication. While I've been successful in getting most of those doctors to lower the carbs, the minority are low-carb ketogenic kind of doctors because they just say, well, I can't keep people on it. They don't believe in it, and so neither do their patients. Exactly. Say the ones who come to the clinic and see it are the ones who you know, do the true conversion and believe it. I was just going to mention that there, there's a lot of interest in the ketogenic diet and cancer, either cancer treatment or prevention. So do you know about our latest book called Keto Clarity? It came out last month. Jimmy Moore, the internet blogger, has talked me into helping with a series. Uh, we did Cholesterol Clarity last year and then Keto Clarity. It's with the publisher, uh, Victory Belt. The book's doing really well. The way we've done it is to interview funny people, and a lot of them have been on Jimmy's podcast in the past. And so you have multiple experts giving their opinions and then also how to do the ketogenic diet and, and troubleshooting and the recipes in the back. Yeah, check out Keto Clarity. You've been listening to Dr. Eric Westman of Duke University. I'm Shelley Schlender. You can find more interviews like this at meandmydiabetes.com.